Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. Preet is out this week, so on today's episode of Cafe Insider, I'm joined by Rachel Barkow. Rachel recently became a Cafe contributor. She writes a monthly note like the one that I also write. Rachel is also a professor at NYU Law School, where she teaches courses in criminal law, administrative law, and constitutional law. She served on the United States Sentencing Commission from 2013 to 2019. Today, we'll be discussing three administrative law cases that are before the Supreme Court this term. You know, administrative law rarely makes big headlines, but these cases could have major implications. In one case, the issue is whether the justices should overturn a longstanding doctrine that says courts should defer to federal agencies' interpretation of ambiguous laws. Another case asks whether SEC enforcement actions require jury trials under the Seventh Amendment. And the last case could invalidate the funding structure of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Today, we're sharing an excerpt from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the Insider community. Look, there are big cases this term. I want to start right in the middle, though, with Loper Bright Enterprises versus Ramondo, because I think it's helpful to understanding the stakes and continuing your explanation about the trends. So Loper Bright is set for argument on January 17. That's coming up. There's a more recently added companion case. And like a lot of good administrative cases, it involves the fishing industry, which I think seems to happen um, a whole lot, right? Have you noticed that too? <laughs> I don't know. There's a big statutory interpretation case I teach that's also the fishing industry. So is yeah. it Yates? Is that yes, the one Yates, that you teach? That's yeah. The one. Yep. So this is, I mean, these cases are always about some little guy in the fishing industry being harmed by the big administrative nanny state. I always point out to my students that there are a lot of laws criminalizing the transportation of, of wet fish scrap in different ways. So Loper Bright looks at a slightly different aspect of the fishing industry. Can you talk about the facts in the case and the issue that it presents? These are um, fish, fisher people. I'm not sure. <laughs> people who fish <laughs> sometimes need to have monitors go along with them to make sure they're not, you know, overfishing. And it, it's, you know, it's kind of part of a conservation effort and to maintain the supply. And so as a result of that, there's, there is a need to monitor and engage in data collection. And sometimes what that means is there has to be someone on the boat with the people who fish who keeps an eye on what they're doing and keeps track. And all that is very clear in the law that this monitoring is part of the regulatory landscape. And, and you want that for sustainable fishing, you know, so that the supply lasts. So there's good reasons for it. What is unclear is when you have one of these monitors on your boat, do you have to pay for it? And the government agency in charge of this had said, yeah, actually, you know, that's, that's like just like any other regulation that sometimes costs you more money. This is one of those. And so when there's a monitor on your boat, you know, you've got to pay the monitor. It's like you're responsible for <laughs> paying the contract on the monitor. And you know, it can be like up to $710 a day, according to the briefs in the case. So, you know, like there, it's not cheap to have these people on your boat and the people who engage in, in fishing operations don't like it. And so they challenged it. They, they said this, hey, look, where did you agency get off telling us that we have to pay for this? Where's your statutory authority for that? Because when Congress creates all these agencies, I, just to back up for a second, you know, they, they pass statutes. 
So any agency that's out there in the world, you'll be able to go look in the U.S. code and find the law that created that agency. And Congress will say, you know, this is the agency. This is how the people will be appointed to it. This is how these people will be removed from it. And then it'll also, in the law, say, this is what the agency is supposed to do. You know, they'll lay out these intelligible principles uh, that to guide the agency in how to regulate the particular sphere. So here, Congress made very clear that it was necessary to have monitoring. What Congress didn't do, though, was say who pays for it. So that's a gap in the law. And the regulatory agency responsible for this said, okay, well, we think you should have to pay for it because like you have to, like it costs money to comply with any regulation. It costs money to have the monitor and you regulated parties should pay for it. So the fishing industry folks who were affected by this challenged that decision and said, there's no statutory authority for what you're doing, but more broadly, what they didn't like is there is this legal framework that has come to be known as the Chevron Doctrine. So, you know, any listener who's taken an ad law class knows Chevron. It's like the biggest case in administrative law. It's the most cited administrative law case of, it's like the, you know, Taylor Swift of ad law is Chevron. And so that case, the court decided in the 80s, it was a unanimous decision. And it said, look, you know, when a statute is clear and says exactly what it is the agency can do, that's what the agency has to do, right? When there's clarity, there's no issue. But when a statute is silent or ambiguous about something, then any reasonable interpretation that the agency adopts is one that gets deference. It just needs, the agency just needs to be reasonable. And that framework, it's, you know, the two steps of Chevron. Is the statute clear? If it's not clear, is the agency's interpretation a reasonable interpretation of the statute? That two-step framework, you know, has been the governing law for four decades. But it's come under attack, I'd say, in, you know, the last decade-ish. Some conservatives don't like it. And, you know, they don't like it in part because they don't like agencies getting this kind of deference because they don't like what the agencies are doing. You know, they think that agencies have gone too far with what they see as unjustified wiggle room. And these cases challenge that. So, you know, it's interesting because the way the cases are teed up, they say, you know, overrule Chevron. But technically overruling Chevron would mean overruling this case that involved how much pollutants can come out of a given plant. You know, what what's the meaning of a stationary source? Is it your whole plant? Is it a subset of your plant? They're not really asking to overrule the holding of Chevron. What they're asking the court to do is get rid of that familiar two-step framework that every ad law student for 40 years has learned, right? So it would also mean I'd have to get rid of my Chevron hat. I have all kinds of Chevron memorabilia. <laughs> It'd be devastating to me personally, because that has been the kind of core of ad law. And and the reason that 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 framework exists, and it was a unanimous opinion in the first place, is because every time a statute is ambiguous or silent, you just have to ask yourself, okay, well, if we didn't have the Chevron framework, then what? All right, well, the then what would be, so we would have federal judges deciding oh, what do I think a stationary source is in a big polluting plant? You know, the, the judge would be the one to make the decision. And so people who have defended Chevron, and it has included conservatives, libertarians, Republicans, Democrats, it, it had widespread and bipartisan support for a very long time until recently, including, for example, the judge for whom I clerk, both of them, both Judge Silberman and Justice Scalia, adhered to Chevron and 
supported it. And Judge Silverman gave a, you know, a very full-throated defense of Chevron saying, look, it's your choices between an unelected federal judge or an agency that is, you know, still got political accountability that has expertise in an area that has this as part of a broader regulatory landscape. Of course, it, it as between the two, Congress would want it to be the agency that fills in the gaps. That's why Congress creates these things. It's like an implicit delegation. And for decades, that has just been accepted conventional wisdom. But what Loper, Bright, and Relentless are asking the court to do is overturn that. And, you know, there are some takers on the Supreme Court. We know that already. Justice Gorsuch has already stated in other contexts that he doesn't like the Chevron framework. You know, I think there have been hints from Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, that they also have questions. So I think, you know, it's, it's, we'll see, we'll see what the court does when we hear the oral argument, how far they're willing to go. But the one thing that's a little bit different, I should say, about this than the analogy that I drew to Roe leading ultimately to Dobbs is that, you know, there are regulated entities that themselves like Chevron, <laughs> you know, and, and mm-hmm. sometimes they like the clarity of a legal framework that they understand of a regulatory landscape that they know how to work within. So it, it's not the case that every kind of business interest out there would want to see Chevron overturned. And so I think it's a little more complicated in terms of the politics. Uh, the briefs, the, the number of briefs in these cases at the court is, it's kind of funny if you go to the SCOTUS website, <laughs> take a look who's filed. I mean, you could spend the next two weeks between now and the argument doing nothing but reading the amicus briefs. There are just tons on both sides. Well, I think, you know, it's like Taylor Swift says, I mean, if we're going to call Chevron deference the Taylor Swift of administrative law doctrines, we might as well look to her for wisdom. Um, You know, she says, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. (laughs) And I think to your point about some of the regulated industries liking this level of certainty, it's a good point, right? And at the end of the day, who do you want making decisions? Do you want experts and scientists at the EPA or some federal judge sitting in a one-judge division in a district in Texas? I mean, be careful of what you ask for. You might get it, which is to ask, what will you be looking for when this case goes to oral argument? I mean, the briefing is exhaustive, as you've pointed out. There are a lot of amicus. But when the parties stand up and argue, where do you think the fun is going to happen? I mean, I think... Uh, well, prediction is always a little dangerous, but you know, I think the I hate it when people do that to me. So here I am doing no, it. No, it's to fine. You. It's fine. I I think that Justices Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas will be, you know, willing to to potentially do this. So I guess looking to see if they show reluctance or if they seem kind of still pretty excited about this. I think the three liberal justices will find this insane. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, we'll be looking to the three justices that, as we so often do these days, you know, I would not call them justices in the middle, but, (laughs) you know, the chief justice, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, what kinds of questions they ask about this and how they view it. Because, you know, for Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, they both served on the D.C. Circuit, which is the circuit that does get most administrative law cases. So they're well familiar with this doctrine. They know how it works. Justice Barrett was on the Seventh Circuit where they didn't get as many cases, but, you know, she was also a Silberman and Scalia clerk. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, it's in the clerkship waters to (laughs) think about Chevron a particular way. So I would say seeing how they 
question the litigants will will be telling in terms of how far they might be willing to go in this case. There's ways for the court to decide this without it being a wholesale destruction of Chevron. You know, they might have ways to narrow it, or they could even just say, look, this is an easy case under Chevron. The court just got it wrong under step one and should have found that the statute is clear and you can't make the regulated entity pay. Or they might come up with a rule that says, you know, what it involves paying a third party, (laughs) you know, outside of the traditional regulatory framework, Congress needs to be more clear for us to assume that that authority was delegated. You know, there's ways that they could write this opinion that are narrow that don't call into question the entire framework. So I think we're looking at how the questions are being asked. Are they looking for those kind of narrowing devices or are they looking to go big? I mean, there were four justices who took this case, you know, who were interested enough to take the case which suggests that they probably want to overrule this. And so the question is, are they overruling it because they feel bad that the people in this fishing industry had to pay the monitor, but it's going to be pretty narrow? Or are they thinking big, like this is the vehicle to get rid of Chevron? So it's a fascinating answer because I was going to ask you if you thought that there was a chance that the court might issue a narrower ruling and what you made of the fact that there were four judges who wanted to hear this. And you've sort of anticipated, I think, and and already answered those questions. Again, acknowledging that I hate it when people ask me to crystal ball because I think there's no such thing as a good crystal ball in most Supreme Court cases. But do you think that the court feels a little bit more constrained to take this? It would be a big, bold step to overturn Chevron deference. And do you think that they might be more hesitant to do it now that they've seen the fallout from reversing Roe versus Wade? Or do you think that they're just firm on this as a big part of their agenda? That's such a good question. You know, and I've kind of gone back and forth in my own mind. You know, some days I think that as they're thinking about the court's legitimacy, you know, they have to wonder, are they really going to blow up huge areas of law (laughs) and, you know, go big, go big all the time, all at once, everywhere? Or are they kind of thinking about ways to gain some institutional credibility? Because the kind of going back, if you, if you think about when they overruled Roe, you know, they applied a framework for thinking about stare decisis when you overturn precedent where, you know, clearly wrong when decided, you know, unworkable and was there reliance interests, et cetera. There's a bunch of these factors. And when you apply those factors to the Chevron framework, there's really not a good case for undoing it. The fact of the matter is it's not a constitutional decision, first of all. It's an assumption about what Congress is doing when it has ambiguous statutes involving agencies. And the assumption basically says, hey, look, you know, Congress, we think when you are ambiguous or you don't say something, that it's an implicit delegation to this agency that you created. So in any given case, you know, Congress can just override that. Congress could have overridden Chevron, you know, could have passed a law right afterwards that said, oh, that's a crazy rule of interpretation. (laughs) You know, we don't like that. And in fact, in some cases, Congress is clear, you know, we don't want there to be deference in this context or, you know, this. So, so this isn't like Roe that way. It could have been overruled and it wasn't. And, you know, typically the Supreme Court, when it comes to questions like that involving statutes, doesn't overrule their own precedent for just that reason, which is, look, if we got it wrong as a court, Congress can easily change that by just changing statutes, 
changing the way things are regulated. So that's one huge difference where I think if they go back on Chevron, it's a pretty big red flag that they don't actually take stare decisis principles seriously because there's no reason to do it. And then the kind of second big one is this isn't a framework that has been broken. In fact, it's a framework that's done a really good job. Courts know how to use this and they are used to using it. And, and everyone has framed their arguments around this framework. So there's a big reliance interest around thinking about statutory issues this way. So I think, you know, I think if the court does decide to blow this up, it would be just an enormous sign that truly all bets are off with this court. Like they really are willing to just kind of wipe the slate clean on just about anything. Justice Thomas has made that clear for years in his decisions. He's always kind of one that like, yep, I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm originalist or overall precedent. I'll just let the chips fall where they may. I don't care. But the other justices have tended to care more about some of those practical considerations. And Chevron would be a really big signal if it turns out that they turn their back on that framework, that, that actually there's a lot more of the justices who share that Thomas outlook on how to think about precedent than than maybe we'd realized before. So just your basic low stakes sort of Supreme Court case, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're big. These are big cases. I know it won't seem like that. Like, are you kidding me? It's just like a monitor on a fishing boat. <laughs> but it, it, is, it is a much bigger context for, you know, basically every regulatory issue you can think of where there's a statutory interpretation issue, which is every regulatory issue, you know, is governed by this Chevron framework. And so it, the stakes are actually huge in these cases and they're huge for individuals and they're huge for industry. And so these are definitely cases to watch. So, you know, that's an interesting point because I wanted to talk with you about the CFPB case a little bit. It was the first case that the court heard oral argument in this term. Preet and I talked about it back in October. Our listeners may recall that. And the case is deceptively simple on its face. It has to do with whether the funding mechanism for the Bureau is constitutional. But it really has much broader implications than that narrow question, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So as a, I mentioned before, the CFPB was one of the kind of first shots fired in the court rolling back some of this administrative law precedent where they challenged the fact that the director of the CFPB was removable only for cause and won. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who've chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.